Our sermon text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. You can be seated, and let's pray together. Father, as we just sung a prayer, we ask again that you would speak, and we pray that your spirit would open our hearts to receive your word, that we would leave this place not merely as hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Would you shape us this morning through the proclamation of your word, so that we would be changed, and that we would be the light of Christ as we leave this place. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Uh, we've been taking larger chunks, but through chapter 3 of Galatians, we've decided to slow it down a little bit because there are so many glorious truths. In fact, Galatians 3 has slowly, over the past few weeks, become one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And this passage in particular is very important for the church. In Galatia, and we've, we've been seeing this, we've seen that there were Gentile Christians to whom Paul was writing, they were faced with an identity crisis. I don't know if you've been thinking of it in this way, but especially in chapter 3, we're seeing that they are faced with an identity crisis. The false teachers, the ones that Paul is opposing, the occasion for the letter itself, they were causing the Galatian believers to doubt who they really were. Now, it's, it's been subtle, but we, we can uh, deduce from Galatians itself, the letter itself, that the Galatian believers had responded to Paul's gospel with faith in Jesus, and they considered themselves to be followers of Jesus. But these false teachers that had come in, that were introduced to in chapter 1, they were persuading these Galatian believers to believe that they weren't quite yet in the fold. They weren't quite yet followers of Jesus and members of the eternal people of God. First, they had to become Jewish in order to finally and truly belong to God's people. They thought that they already belonged simply by trusting in Christ. But the false teachers came in and they said, no, no, no. Paul is mistaken. His message is incomplete in order to be accepted by God fully, you must believe in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. You must spiritually become a Christian, but you must also culturally become Jewish. Obviously, this creates an identity crisis. And so I, I want us to take just a couple minutes to reflect personally. What is your identity? What is your identity? What is it that makes you you. Now, there, there are so many pieces to our lives that it, it really is difficult to give a simple answer to that simple question. Whether you're single or married, whether or not you have children, whether or not you have a job, and what kind of job you have, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexuality, your education, where you were born, your interests, your skills, your abilities, and so many other pieces factor into a complex answer to a simple question, who are you? 
And here's what we tend to do. We tend to elevate one of these pieces of our identity as the primary lens through which we see ourselves. We think, I am what I do. Or, I am where I'm from. Or, I am what my family expects of me. And we also tend to elevate the part of ourselves that is most valued by others. So, for example, if you live in a culture or if you grew up in a family that idolizes the nuclear family, you evaluate your identity on the basis of whether or not you're married or whether or not you have kids. You are failing unless you're married. You are failing unless you have children. However, if your culture or your upbringing values success, then you will evaluate your identity on the basis of how many degrees you have or how much money you've earned or how far you've advanced in your career. And whatever you place at the core of your identity, whatever is the lens through which you you primarily see yourself, that will play a crucial role in determining the kind of person you become. Now, the problem with this reality, and I hope you identify with that in some way, is not that we have many pieces to our identity. That's not the problem. We don't, we don't have to deny that, that we are complex beings with, with different pieces that make up who we are. That's not the problem. The problem is that we elevate or we centralize the wrong pieces. Every part of who we are doesn't belong in the core of our being. Every part of who we are doesn't belong at the center. However, there is one piece of our identity as Christians that does belong at the center, that does belong at the core. And it's the one piece that is so much more important than the other pieces that they fade into the background when this piece is present. When we first believe in Jesus, we can truly say that we have become something new even if those other parts of who we are don't go anywhere. But we can truly say when we first believe in Jesus that we have become something new. We have assumed a new identity. Paul has a favorite phrase, not just in Galatians, but throughout all of his letters to describe this new identity. He sums it up in the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. In Christ is our new identity. He uses that language three times in three verses here. This doesn't eliminate the other parts that make us who we are, but it does overwhelm them in such a way that we now primarily see ourselves as God sees us. Now, what does it mean that we are in Christ? If you had to give a definition for that, what does it mean? Paul uses it over and over and over again throughout his letters in the New Testament, but how would you describe it? How would you define it? And maybe, maybe you would write down an answer really quickly. It's really simple. It's, it's a really simple concept, and it changes everything about your life. What does it mean that we are in Christ? Being in Christ means that we belong to Jesus, that Jesus belongs to us, and everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. We belong to Jesus, Jesus belongs to us, and everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. By faith in Jesus, we have accepted a new core to our identity, and that core is being in Christ. Now, Paul has contended, especially in chapter 3, that we are no longer under the law, neither its curse nor its tutelage. It is no longer a guardian over us, it says in verse 25. 
We have escaped the law as a prison, and we have received the promise made to Abraham all by faith. But here at the end of chapter 3, Paul helps us go deeper into what it means to be in Christ by unveiling three parts of our new identity. Three parts, and that's what I want to unpack for you here. To be in Christ means three things. First, that we are children of God and heirs of the promise. We are children of God and heirs of the promise. Second, that we are clothed with Christ. To be in Christ means, first, that we are children of God and heirs of the promise, and second, that we are clothed with Christ. And third, and finally, to be in Christ means that we are one in Christ. So three parts of this new identity. We are children of God and heirs of the promise. We are clothed with Christ. And finally, we are one in Christ. All right, so let's take these one by one. First, in verse 26, in verse 29, we'll take, we'll take a look at both of them. In Christ, we are children of God and heirs of the promise. Look at verse 26 with me. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then down in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We're going to connect those two in a minute. Now, Galatians 3:26 is the fulcrum. It is the center of Paul's argument in chapters 3 and 4. He's making one long argument from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way to the end of chapter 4, and verse 26 is the center of this. It's a declaration that jumps out at us. It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That is Paul's central idea throughout these two chapters. You all are children of God through faith in Jesus. So in verses 26 and 29, Paul begins to explore the theological concept of adoption by sharing the who, the what, and the how of adoption. And I want us to take these into consideration really quickly. So first, the who. Who is adopted? The recipients. When Paul says, you are all sons of God through faith, notice the condition of our sonship. It's faith, not physical birth. So what we need to, to say here is that Paul is not saying that all people without exception are children of God. He is not looking out at the world and saying, you are all children of God. He is writing to Galatian believers. And he's saying, because you are in Christ, you all without exception in Christ, are children of God. Now, apart from faith in Jesus, we only relate to God as our creator. God, God is the creator of all people, and so all people without exception relate to God as creator. In Christ, however, we now relate to God as father. So all people everywhere are not God's children. Only those who are in Christ through faith is the condition. Are we children of God? So you were not physically born a child of God. Entrance into God's family requires a spiritual rebirth, one that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. However, for those who are trusting in Jesus, there are no exceptions for adoption into God's family. All people trusting in Jesus without exception are welcomed into the eternal family of God. So if, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you are, I can confidently say to you, without any exception, you are a child of God. So the recipients. Second, the what. The what of adoption. This new status that we have. Paul writes, you are all sons of God or children of God. So what does it mean to be a son or a daughter of God. 
Well, first, we, we could say, probably most obviously, that it means that we belong to a new family. We have a heavenly father now, and by extension, for all, all the rest of us who are trusting in Jesus, we have brothers and sisters in the faith. But most important to Paul, our adoption means that we are heirs to the promise made to Abraham. So by virtue of becoming children of God, we are now heirs of the promise that's made to Abraham. So by our union with the one offspring, we saw back in in Galatians 3.16, by our union with this one offspring, Jesus, to whom the promise had been made, all the benefits of the promise made to Abraham, it all belongs to us. So Paul's argument culminates in this moment. He's been saying salvation and eternal blessing come through God's promise to Abraham, not obedience to the law of Moses. That was a big part of his argument. And so now we are forced to ask, who will receive the promise? And Paul answers that for us as well. The offspring or the children of Abraham will receive the promise. And and here we go, right at the identity. But who are the children of Abraham? And the answer, Paul just makes crystal clear for us, those who trust in Jesus. So if you have faith in Jesus this morning, you have become a child of God. And here's what that means. You are an heir. You are an heir to the promise that your father made to Abraham. Every ounce of blessing and salvation and future joy that God has promised to his son and to his people, that's your inheritance. It's waiting for you. So you may have never felt like that you truly belonged anywhere in this world. You may may never felt like you belonged in your own family even. But know that if you are in Christ, you fit right in here. You belong. You are a child of God. God is no longer merely your creator who sustains your life or your judge who has merely pardoned your sentence. God is your father who tenderly cares for you and firmly protects you. And there's an inheritance of eternal blessing that is awaiting all who are trusting in Jesus. Now, that's great. That's great for for one day in the future, right? Like, yes, I can't wait for it. It's going to be awesome to receive that blessing, but I'm not really feeling a ton of blessing right now, okay? It's like I'm an heir, but I'd love to cash in on that, like, now. Like, I, I don't want to have to wait for it. So how does this help us? How does this help us now? Well, if you are a child of the eternal God of the universe, and you do have an eternal blessing, an eternal joy that is waiting for you and that is guaranteed for you, There is nothing we should fear in this world. There is nothing we should fear in this world. No sin or evil, no pain or suffering, no work of Satan can take from you what God has given you in Christ. You are a child of God. And at minimum, this means that your future is gloriously bright. Even if the rest of your days on this earth are clouded by darkness, You have an inheritance of peace and joy and blessing waiting for you. Because as a child of God, you are an heir with Christ. So what we can say at the same time, simultaneously, we can declare these two truths. That the suffering of Christ may be our suffering in this world. We will suffer as he suffered. But we can say at the same time, his glory will be our glory. One day. One day. So we can endure now. Okay, so that's, that's the what, now, now the how, the how of adoption. And we, we've said it, but just wanted to be clear. How do we become children of God? 
How do we become heirs of the promise of Abraham? And there's really only one way. It's to be in Christ. It's to be united or connected to the Son of God. It is through faith alone that we go from being outside of Christ to in Christ. And those who are in Christ possess all that belongs to Jesus. We share in his sonship. He is the Son of God, and we are sons and daughters of God. We participate in his glory. What's his is ours, because though he knew no sin... Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I love how the Apostle John puts this. He wrote in John 1, But to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So just to be crystal clear, you cannot be grafted into God's family simply by being born to Christian parents. Their, their righteousness, their, their faith doesn't, doesn't transfer to you. You can't become a child of God by keeping the law or by following the rules or by living a good and decent life. Entrance into God's family comes through adoption, and our adoption is rooted in the work of Jesus in our place. And we receive those benefits by faith alone. So if you want to become a child of God, there is nothing for you to do but to receive the promise held out for you in Jesus by faith. So in Christ, we are the children of God and heirs of the promise. But there's a second idea here. There's a second uh, component to our new identity in Christ. In Christ, we are clothed with Christ. We are clothed with Christ. We see this in verse 27. So let's look at verse 27 together. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Read it again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, many of us, when we first believe in Jesus, when we first, when we first became a Christian, if you, can, if you can think back to that time for you, we probably thought about what Christ had done to remove things from us. Okay, that's, that's how I primarily viewed salvation, that Christ had removed a lot of things from us through his death and resurrection. So if, if you can remember, what was your understanding of your life in Christ when you first believed? We typically think, think of it in this way, what, what Christ has removed. We think of the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin, the, the guilt that, that we have. It is removed. It is taken away. There is no more guilt. We are forgiven in Christ because he has died in our place. We think of the power of sin. The power of sin has been removed from me so that I am no longer a slave to sin or temptation or the law itself. I'm free. I'm set free. And then we think of the stain or the shame of sin. It has all been removed from us. But how often do we think about what has been added to us in Christ? We think about what's been removed, but do we think about what has been added to us Paul is saying that faith in Jesus not only removes the guilt and power of sin, but it adds a new identity, a new status before God in this world. So here in verse 27, Paul says that if you are in Christ, you become something new. In another letter, uh, he writes in, in 2 Corinthians that we are new creations in Christ. But here he writes, if you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. And another way, I prefer this other translation, another way to translate it says that you are clothed with Christ. Now, let's, let's unpack it just a little bit. Those baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death 
and his resurrection. Here's the point. The old self has been crucified with Christ, and the new self has been raised with Christ. The, the language in the original Greek, it actually suggests that by faith in Jesus, that we have essentially experienced an inner change of clothes. So we take off an old identity, and we put on a new identity. Those who are, who are plunged, you could say, into Christ at their conversion are now clothed with him. So as children of God, we have a new identity which leads then to a new life. Being united to Jesus by faith means that we have put on Christ or we are clothed with Christ. So we now live according to his desires, we follow his example, and we strive to become more and more like Jesus. We participate with Christ as we put on Christ. And baptism, notice the connection, baptism puts this on display. It's a picture of this identity change. I had this quote here. I completely forgot to write down the author's name, and I could not find it before this morning, but I love it so much. Uh, this writer says, baptism is the frontier between two worlds, between two entirely different modes of life, or rather, between death and life itself. So notice then how Paul appeals to baptism in this verse. And maybe more importantly, notice how he doesn't use baptism. Because we're at this moment where, obviously, circumcision has been a big theme in the letter so far. So, you know, maybe you've thought, well, yeah, circumcision is no longer necessary, but baptism has taken the place of circumcision. So he, he introduces the concept of baptism here, but notice how he uses it and notice how he doesn't. So Paul does not add baptism as a necessary component for salvation. That's not what he's doing here. He's not saying that you can't be in Christ until you are baptized. Baptism is not even, notice, he doesn't say this, it's not a work that initiates the regenerating work of the Spirit. Baptism is not a necessary addition to faith in Christ that accomplishes or finishes our belonging in the family of God. And, and here, you, you could come to the same conclusion that I have. How foolish would it be for Paul at this point in the letter if his argument went like this? Now, my opponents are trying to circumcise you. I want you to know that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Faith in Jesus is enough. That's what he's been saying. But then, at this point, what if he adds something in and he says, but you do have to be baptized. You do have to be baptized to be saved. Baptism has replaced circumcision. If you want to be right with God, you must trust Jesus and be baptized. If that's Paul's point here, he has completely defeated everything else he said so far in the letter. No, Paul connects baptism to union with Christ, this concept of being in Christ, because baptism looks back to the divine change that we've experienced through faith alone in Jesus. So faith in Jesus is the beginning of a new life, a new identity that involves putting off the old self and putting on Christ. Baptism confirms this new relationship we have with Christ as an outward sign of an inward change. Uh, Bible scholar, theologian, Timothy George, he wrote this about baptism. Baptism models justification. 
Okay, I love, I love how he uses that. Baptism models justification, although it can never mediate it. Baptism implies a radical personal commitment involving a decisive no to one's former way of life and an equally emphatic yes to Jesus Christ. So, as, as a Baptist church, what can we say about baptism? So, what we can say is clearly that baptism doesn't contribute to salvation. And we emphasize that so much, we can almost come to the point where we say, okay, then what's the point? Why, why should I be baptized at all? This, if, if it doesn't matter, I mean, if I could die tomorrow and baptism doesn't add or take away anything from my salvation, why is it important? Why should I do it? Let me offer four reasons, okay? So if you're, if you're wrestling with this, if you personally haven't been baptized and, and you're stubborn like, like I can be and you're like, nope, not doing it, not doing it. I don't have to do it. I'm not going to do it. Then, then just hear me out here, okay? Four reasons, four reasons why we baptize. First one, this is, you've, I know you've all heard this one. Um, this is the one that my home church pastor, uh, you know, years ago would, would give, and this was the only reason. Jesus said to, Jesus said, he commanded it. Do we need anything else? Jesus commanded us to baptize. Do we need any more reasons? And then it would just stop, and it's like, well, I, yeah, I would like another reason or two, but no, no, no. But, but we, don't, we don't need to get away from it. Jesus did command it. Jesus commanded that we baptize. So, so yeah, that's, that's reason number one. This is why we baptize. Jesus commanded it. Reason number two, baptism is our means of identifying with Jesus. We are baptized, Paul says, into Christ. Baptism signifies that our, old, that our new identity is consumed by Jesus. So we have left our old life behind, and we are now following Jesus. He has become the core of our identity, and we demonstrate this identity shift as we are baptized. So that's, that's reason number two. It, we identify with Jesus. Reason number three, baptism is our means of identifying with the church. So we not only identify with Jesus as we're baptized, but we identify with the church when we're baptized. Timothy George is helpful again. He writes, Baptism implies a gathered church, a community of intentional disciples marked off from the world by their commitment to Christ and to one another. Baptism is the place where what has happened individually in regeneration is validated corporately within the fellowship of the community of faith. So we identify as, as those who not only belong to Jesus, but as those who belong to one another in baptism. All right, reason number four, and this is the most beautiful to me. Baptism tells the story of the gospel. Baptism tells the story of the gospel. It does in three ways. First, baptism demonstrates the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection, which accomplished salvation that is freely available to all who believe. So as you're baptized, and, and you're plunged under the water and you come back up, you are picturing the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It, it is an image of what Christ has done for us. And it is a declaration that if I can get in on this as the one being baptized, anyone can get in on this. So, so first, it demonstrates the work of Jesus. Second, it demonstrates our own deliverance. So it shows, as we, as we are plunged beneath the water and we come back up, it shows that we have died to our former way of life, that we have been risen to walk in our new life by following Jesus. It signifies, it, it demonstrates this identity shift that's happened in our lives. So it demonstrates our own deliverance. And finally, and this is something you may not have considered, I'm sure you've considered the other parts. It is a foretaste. It, it is a declaration of what is one day going to happen in the future. 
It's a foretaste of our future resurrection from the dead when Christ returns. We believe not only that Jesus was raised from the dead, but one day when Christ returns, we all will be raised from the dead and we will receive glorified bodies. And we picture that when, I keep pointing over here because that's where we baptize. Um, But on that day, we will be raised with Christ and we picture that, we, we demonstrate that in baptism as we are plunged beneath the waters and we come up, we are saying one day death will be no more and we will be resurrected and raised with Christ. So if you are in Christ by faith, you are clothed with Christ. You have put on Christ as your new identity, and that is demonstrated through baptism. Now, last thing we need to consider. How do we show our union with Christ most clearly? How do we show it? Because it's, it's, it's something that happens within us. It's a reality that we can declare, but how is it seen? How, how is our union with Christ Seen. How do we show that we have been adopted as God's children, that we are heirs of the promise, that we have individually and corporately put on Christ? Well, we show our union with Christ through our unity with one another. And this is the most significant part of this passage, verse 28. Last, last part of our identity in Christ. In Christ, we are one. In Christ, we are one. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Take a second and look at that. What's Paul saying? What's he saying here? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. You check out this next phrase. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. A lot of people have hijacked this this single verse for a lot of different purposes, but that's not how you interpret the Bible. You don't just hijack a verse and, and make a conclusion. It has to fit within the context of the rest of the letter and the rest of the Bible. So here's how we're going to deal with this. We'll make a simple observation. First, If we are in Christ, we belong not only to God through adoption, but we belong to one another. And we can extend that. We belong to one another in such a way as to render of no account the things which normally distinguish us, like race, social status, and gender. Before God... This is the contention, this is, this is the claim. Before God, our ethnicity, our economic status, and our sexuality count for nothing. That's Paul's point. Now let's examine it a little closer. Why do you think Paul chose these three distinctions? You might could immediately say from what you know of Galatians, well, it makes sense why, why he would say there is neither Jew nor Greek, because he's, he's had to deal with that already in his letter. Why, why slavery? There's neither slave nor free. Why, why social status? And then finally, why gender? There's neither male nor female. Uh, well, to help you out, let's consider a couple contexts here. We're going to look at the, the Greco-Roman context, so the, the context the Galatians were in. We're going to look at the Jewish context, and then also in Galatia itself, that context. So three different contexts here. So first, Greco-Roman. In the Greco-Roman world, 
Greek men regularly thanked the gods for allowing them to be born as human beings and not beasts. Look at these. So he, they have their own list here. So listen to this list. So the Greek men, they thanked the gods for allowing them to be born as human beings and not beasts. Greeks and not barbarians. Citizens and not slaves. Men and not women. Okay, so this is, this is the world, the ancient Greco-Roman world that Paul is writing in. This was the view. And then we can get to the Jewish context. At least by the middle of the second century AD, which is, which is a couple hundred years after uh, Galatians was written, we actually find a Jewish rabbi who incorporated a similar pattern of prayers. Listen to this prayer that I, I found. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe who has not made me a foreigner blessed art thou O Lord our God king of the universe who has not made me a slave blessed art thou O Lord our God king of the universe who has not made me you guessed it a woman now let's think about the context in Galatia itself The biggest misconception in Galatia was that a person had to become Jewish culturally. You had to observe the Jewish customs in order to get in on the gospel promise. So you had had to become a Jew in order to become a child of God. But most significantly to all of this context is that in both the Greco-Roman and Jewish societies of the day, foreigners, slaves, and women could not be heirs of an inheritance. They could not be heirs. But the beauty of the gospel is that one's ethnic background, social class, and gender are irrelevant in determining whether one is a child of Abraham and a child of God. Adoption into God's family comes through being connected to Jesus by faith. And the good news of Paul's gospel is that anyone Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can become a child of God. Anyone can put on Christ. Anyone can believe, regardless of background or current social status. Now, quick caveat. Quick caveat here. This is not to say that ethnic, social, and gender distinctions are obliterated. They still exist. So we should not strive to be colorblind so as to ignore or belittle the beauty of ethnic or cultural diversity. We should not ignore the reality that some people are more culturally and socially privileged than others, while others are more disadvantaged. We should not ignore or diminish a person's gender. God created humans as male and female intentionally. Our unity in Christ doesn't eliminate God's good design. When Paul says Christ has negated These distinctions, he does not mean that they do not exist. So what he means is that they do not matter when it comes to our status with Christ and his church. So the real existence of cultural and social distinctions is actually what makes Christian unity so beautiful. If we all are exactly the same, it's kind of tough to see actual unity. It's easy to see uniformity, but it's it's difficult to see unity people who would otherwise never be caught dead in the same place lift their voices in unison, share resources, bear burdens, 
cry together, laugh together, all because Jesus has brought this band of misfits together. That is the declaration of the gospel, and that's what Paul is getting at here. So pastorally, here's what I want to share with you. Our place in the family of God is based solely on our union with Christ, not any cultural or social or biological distinctions. Christ alone is the basis of our unity. In both, as we already saw this in the ancient world, but it's true in the modern world as well, in both the ancient world and the modern world, some people are inevitably and will continue to be considered more important than others. We will never escape this as human societies. In the ancient world, Jews considered themselves to be superior to Gentiles, free people looked down on slaves, and men considered themselves to be superior to women. And I don't have to give you a history lesson on the United States. We have our own dark and twisted legacy of establishing such hierarchical systems. White men and women have historically enslaved, abused, demeaned, and marginalized black men and women. Immigrants, though historically welcome to the United States, have often been maligned and viewed as second-class citizens. Those who are wealthy and educated have often taken advantage of those who are poor and uneducated. Men have historically marginalized women through misogynistic attitudes and policies that fail to honor and dignify women as human beings. But we don't even have to look to the pages of history, and we don't have to look to the news to find examples of superiority complexes. All we have to do is look in the mirror. You and I struggle with superiority complexes. We, for some reason, because of sin in this fallen world, we have this inner longing to feel superior to others. We find satisfaction in feeling better than someone else. We look to some cultural or social distinction and we look down on those who are different from us. And we are tempted to accept the evil human distinctions that are in some way embedded in every society, that some people are inherently more valuable than others because of what they look like or what they have. This matters for the culture of our church. This matters deeply. These anti-gospel attitudes can sneak into this church in subtle ways so that we start feeling superior to others in our faith family. So maybe you hear those big examples and you're like, no, it doesn't, I, I don't see that in myself. I would encourage you to take another look because I see it in myself sometimes. But let's think of some more subtle ways that we, we like to feel superior to other people here. Here's a for instance. What if someone in your life group shared that they were voting for a candidate that you could not support? Would you feel morally superior to them? What if someone sitting near you, maybe this morning, has a personality that just doesn't jive with yours? Do you keep them at arm's length? Do you doubt their value to our church? What if you learned that someone in our faith family disagrees with you about a secondary, non-central theological topic? Would you feel theologically superior to them and put them down or try to help them get to where you are? This idea of unity in Christ, it not only matters for the culture of our church, though, it matters for the mission of our church. 
If we are only attracting people who are exactly like us culturally or socially, we are missing the breadth of the gospel, and it's possible we may be centralizing something other than the gospel. Our church's unity cannot be based on politics, social status, ministry preferences, personalities, or other common interests. If we all look the same, think the same, dress the same, act the same, and like all the same things, we will indeed create a uniform culture not a unified culture. Here's what this means. If we strive to create a uniform culture where we all look the same and act the same and no one is free to be different here, it means that anyone who doesn't meet the standards of appearance, thought, dress, actions, and interests will not be welcomed. Even though on the service, we may say, you're welcome here. They will not belong. As one body... We have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. We have been liberated from racism and materialism and sexism. And as one body, we can be, if we will press into this, a public witness against the evils of racism and materialism and sexism. And at minimum, that means they have no place in our church. When the gospel, rather than cultural distinctions, is the central driving force of our church's identity and mission, we will strive to reach all people in Tupelo with the gospel, not just those who are most like us. So our our unity, excuse me, our unity is based on Christ, which means a healthy church will not diminish diverse people, ideas, or interests, but instead highlight the common ground on which we stand. One of the marks of a healthy church is unity expressed in unconditional love and mutual submission in the midst of diversity. We each carry eternal value, and we each deserve love from one another, not because we belong to a certain cultural group or we meet a certain social standard, but because we belong to Jesus first and foremost. And if we belong to Jesus, we belong to everyone else who belongs to Jesus. We are equal in Christ, no matter how unequal we are in the world. I can't do any better than John Stott. I think I've said that the last three weeks, but John Stott is just so good. He's so good. John Stott said, we are equal, equal in our need of salvation, equal in our inability to earn or deserve it, and equal in the fact that God offers it to us freely in Christ. Once we have received it, our equality is transformed into a fellowship, the brotherhood which only Christ can create. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a fellowship, a brotherhood, a community that only Christ could create. That otherwise, on my own, I wouldn't be around those people because of the differences that we have. The good news is we don't have to create this unity out of thin air. We are unified in Christ. The work of the church is to maintain it. The local church, then, is a physical example of the radical grace of God displayed in the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. What better way can we demonstrate this than a diverse body? We display the beauty of the gospel most clearly when we demonstrate our unity in the midst of much diversity. Our city and the world in general will see the real Jesus in us when a diverse group of people draws near to one another in love and service because we've all realized and we're all living this out that the one thing we have in common is the only thing that matters, Jesus. So before God, our bloodline 
our bank account, our gender, they count for nothing. The call of the gospel is radically open and free to all who would come to Jesus by faith. The prophet Isaiah, here's how he said it. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And then John, he wrote, whoever wishes, whoever, whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. We can simultaneously appreciate the beauty of God's created order and lament the ways that it has been horrendously distorted as we link arms with those not like us under the bloody banner of the gospel. Sum it up. We are in Christ. That is our identity. This means that we are sons and daughters of God, we are clothed with Christ, and we are united as one body, regardless of our background or current status in this world. If you trust Jesus, you belong here. No matter where you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, if you have received Jesus by faith, God has fully accepted you into his family. And that fact alone should be good enough for the rest of us. So, my encouragement to you if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, come to him today. Trust in Jesus today because there is room for you here.